Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah, release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Young boys that don't have a father figure around are far more likely to drop out of high school, to be diagnosed with some adverse behavioral disorder. And so it's not that they don't want one, it's that they begin to look for that father figure in places like social media. Hi, my name is Mark Groves and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts where I get to explore alongside you every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. Today, this is a special occasion. All these gentlemen are in Coeur d'Alene at the same time. So I was like, it's we got to get long. together. Exactly. And maybe just before we get kicking into it, just introduce yourself, whatever is relevant to this conversation, which we're, we don't know we're going to all talk about. So whatever is relevant for you. And let's go. I'm a new father of about 16 months tomorrow. Today. Wow. Today, 16 hey, months today. She's 16 awesome. months today. Um, I've been in the personal transformation space for 23 years. Hmm. Feels like a long time, but it feels like I know nothing. I guess that's what would be relevant. Yeah. Me. I'm a wife. I have two beautiful daughters, two great friends that I know really well, and one new friend that I'm getting to know. I have a marketing company, social sales company, uh, saving people from marketing bros one client at a time. That's good. That's a good line. Good no, Lamborghini. <laughs> no Lamborghinis in your marketing videos? No, no there's no... You didn't rent one no, for no the day? No, yeah. no, no. That's uh, funny. So, Stefanos, because we didn't say the name. Oh, yeah, Stefanos, sorry. Dan. Yeah. Yeah. I just assumed everyone would know who I am. Right. Right. We should say that you we'll have... We'll make sure that we put your name below. Yeah, we should yeah. say you have a four-year-old... That's also relevant. That's yeah. also relevant. Yeah. You're right in the thick of... Round number two. Yeah. Yeah. My name is Connor Beaton and I run Man Talks. Basically, I've been doing that for about a decade now and help men develop a deeper sense of self-leadership and 
face or shadow, deal with their shit. Uh, been married for five years now, and five I, years, yeah, legally. And then, Damn. We, and then we did a thing in 2019, like we did like that official ceremony. And I have a two-year-old, uh, two-year, four-month-old today as well. Wait, really? Yeah. 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 Well, I wanted to have this conversation for a number of reasons. One, to really explore, I mean, the circumstances of the world today seem interesting. Let's just use that word. word. Uh, That gives some complexity to the word and some people won't find it interesting and others will. Um, And I think the conversation about men, all of you work with men, maybe more specifically, or with marketing and all that kind of stuff. And I know you work as a coach too. Mm -hmm. And really just looking at men in relationship. I mean, there's so much, my experience of the conversation that's about men online, other than like the red pill sort of space, is men are not showing up. Men are relationally less equipped. And uh, women are leaving men in droves. I don't know where they're going, but maybe they're switching. Who knows? And... (laughs) Uh, <laughs> like teams or yeah, maybe. Mates or switching like, names. What do you imply? Let's switch it. Go <laughs> Don't let the listener just like you know, go, go where they go wherever. It could be to any. But it's like, what do you think about what I'm saying? And is your experience of because I know so many good men, like so many. Mm-hmm. And when I hear the conversation that where are all the good men, I hear from the good men where are all the you know whatever good women. And I'm like, are you just not seeing each other? Because I know so many good dudes. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure your experience is similar. So I think I'm going to say something that I think may be controversial to the to the ears and listeners of many. So when I hear the likes of Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate um, speak hmm. certain truths about men and the the value of men and that the that societal that the overall societal perception of men is undervalued, I, I do believe there's some truth to that. I agree. Um, there, are, there are other authors as well in the space that have been around, um, you know, if, uh, uh, was it William Farrell? Uh, is it William Farrell? Yeah, yeah. Will, Will, yeah, Will, yeah, Will, 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 yeah. Will Farrell, PhD. The Crisis of Boys. That's or, right, yeah, yeah. Crisis of, and he's written, I think, 20-something or 30-something books. Yeah. He's been speaking to this for decades. Where, where men are undervalued or their role is undervalued in society, in Western society particularly. And it's a difficult conversation to broach because... In the same instance, at some level, men have also been the cause of atrocity, of violence, of right. pain in, in, in collective and individual ways, right? In, in the family systems, in smaller communities and larger communities at large. And so it's a difficult conversation to broach, particularly in, in the, I think, the day and age that we live in, where there are other issues that are taking priority. And so I think, you know, at some level, men are becoming a group or a subgroup of people that at some level of becoming disenfranchised. Now, I'm going, I can provide and, and throw out some statistics that... I love I'm, how triggering that term will be time. for people. It's going to be, for but sure. It, but the, the statistics you're about to share will demonstrate... Yeah, and just some, right? Because right? like, I'm, not, I'm not a statistics machine, it's not really what I do, but, but, but some will demonstrate that. Like when, you, when you look at some of the most dangerous do- jobs in the world, the occupancy of those jobs are, are men. When you look at military, I'm not saying military is right or wrong, put that aside for a moment, but we're talking life and death jobs, occupied by men. When we're talking about social services, we're talking about the judicial, judicial system when it comes to family, doesn't favour men. Social services, there are far less services That's provided clear. for men yeah. than there are for, for women. And, and, and I get the, the conversation as to why that is as well. 
mm-hmm. and prison systems. Uh, and it goes on and on and on. I can probably <laughs> dump some of those stats in. Yeah. So when you look at sanitary, so garbage and waste, sewer systems, 98% of those jobs are men. Like a lot of those are very dangerous. When you go to a lot of like electricians to make the electricity run, um, it's 92% of those Hot jobs labor. are men. All, all of the sort of like basic jobs that allow society to function, it's 90 plus percentile are men that are occupying those jobs. And a lot of those jobs are very dangerous. I think what's interesting is, is looking at kind of like rolling it back to what happens with kids. I, I interviewed Richard Reeves, who wrote um, on Boys and Men, on Boys and Men. And he was talking a lot about how our education system actually isn't set up to favor boys, which I think has become a very, it's, it's interesting because I think it's widely adopted. A lot of people can see that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's very much bucked against, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that a lot of young boys are growing up in this environment where, you know, one in four kids are going to grow up without a father. So there's a lack of of mentoring. There's a lack of role modeling. Lack of structure. Lack of structure. Safety. They're not going to see male role models in the school system, right? So it's Generally, like 29% yeah. of education teachers from kindergarten to uh, high school are men. So it's a very small population. I actually thought it would be smaller than that. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in kindergarten, I think it's like 2 or 3%, right? So that's an average between kindergarten and grade 10. Yeah. And then when you look at the support system within our society and our culture, uh, you look at like psychology and therapists, it's 27% of therapists are men. Hmm. So if you're a man that's like being told by culture and society, you should go get support to be a better father, to be a better husband, to help you just, you know, feel better or deal with some of your conflict. You're going out into institutions that are largely female dominated. And some of those institutions are not super favorable towards men, or at least men don't feel like they're super favorable. So I think it's interesting right now, I think, to be a man where, you know, like you're saying, 75% of suicides are going to be men. A large part yeah, the population of that are going to be from the military. Um, I think that a lot of men are struggling with having a purpose within culture and society. You know, I think we've moved into this interesting place where culture, society, people at large are kind of saying like, men aren't really needed. You know, you're not really needed. You're not really wanted in these spaces. You should just sit down. You should stop talking. And so a lot of men are checking out and the data is showing that, right? There's 7 million men of working age in America that are eligible to work and not working. 7 million men between the ages of 25 and 55 that aren't working. That's a monstrous population. Less young men are dating than ever before between 18 and 29. So you have a population of, um, I think it's 32% of men between 18 and 39 aren't in relationship and and, and, are, not and are not pursuing a relationship. That's interesting. Um, in that same age range, you've got, I think it's 37 or 42% of those men haven't been sexually active in a year or more. Which would not be the, I guess the ones who are, are having a lot on. They're, they're, they're having they're, a lot. They're, they're right? crushing it. And so I, th- I think for a lot of guys, they're like, and then, and then you have college rates, which I think is the last piece that I'll put in which by 2030, the data is showing that for every one man that graduates college, two women will graduate. Now that's the inverse of what it was in the 1960s and 70s, where we passed Title IX in America so that we could actually encourage more more women to get into the university institutions, get a college education, go into the workforce, sports, et cetera. 
And so now we've gotten to this place where, you know, it's like, I think it's 43% of college graduates are going to be men. So a lot of these guys, I mean, if you just look at everything I just said, less men going to college, less men dating, less men engaging in sexual activity, right? Like being romantic, going on dates, that kind of stuff. More men engaging in porn. There's more men statistically living at home. Right now in America, there are more men living at home with their parents between 18 and 29 than there are men living with a partner. Right. Damn. So you you have more men living at home, not working, not dating, not going to college. It's like that for me is problematic. And we can, I think what's, what's challenging is we can sit there and say, well, that's a result of men. But we, I think we need to look at the social conversation that's happening about men in general and the purpose and the function that men are being told. Because I think, I, I believe, you know, having worked with men for a decade, it's like we all desire a purpose. You know, men desire a function. Meaning within, is really, it really matters. Yeah, meaning. Meaning really. And we're meaning making machines. And, you know, what concerns me about all of those statistics is the epidemic of loneliness and isolation and that what ultimately that leads to, which is it leads to violence, it leads to self-harm, it leads to suicide, it leads to Abuse, disassociation, yeah, trauma, mm-hmm. all of it, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, that's my biggest concern. And when that starts to happen in society with a with a large group of people, which is essentially 49, 50% of the world's population, we're in trouble as a collective. Like we can't isolate and segregate ourselves in that way and say, oh, well, that's a man's problem, so let the men deal with it. Just, mm-hmm. I don't think it works that way. Well, we're yeah. too interconnected. Right. And, and, you know, I think like added on to this whole conversation about the statistics about the impact that's obviously occurring on men is the conversation about men is like masculinity is toxic. James Cameron, you and I talked about how right. he was like, testosterone's a toxic hormone. We need to get rid. Is it like, fucking serious? That's yeah, what he said. He, he said it's a toxic And then actually, I have one thing in there. <laughs> yeah. The American Psychology Association in 2019 or 2020 published guidelines. American Psychology Association published guidelines for therapists and psychologists to work with men. And in it, they state, and this is Marty verbatim, it's verbatim in there, that traditional masculinity is harmful. Verbatim. And so, just get up, break something, come back. <laughs> Let me show my masculinity. So, so on one hand, I think when I hear this, it's like, why don't more men go to therapy? It's like, well, that, you know, it's like, how you, do you even define like traditional masculinity is toxic? You know, I, I understand harmful. that. What expression harmful. of what traditional masculinity? Is, right. It's so it's subcultural. It's it's every every group of people has their own definition, if you like, or expression of what traditional means to them. That's right. such a, such a bullshit conversation yeah. and that's coming from from a, a credible institution that also that carries weight the bereavement clause for depression from the dsm right. like <laughs> they also i mean I, they also said that face masks don't affect child development and then removed everything on their the the american pediatric association pediatric, I believe, yeah. removed all the data on their website that showed how important facial attunement was for development just to support their state i mean I could go on about systems and just how, you know, obviously all that stuff can be useful. Let me add that qualifier. But like, I look at this conversation and I think of like all the stats you guys are dropping and I can't help but be sad for men who are not generally, we're not generally equipped to then confront everything you're saying on our own and make our way through the world to resolve or heal Mm. this, you know, you're taught your whole life generally to not be emotional, because if you're emotional, you're abandoning masculinity. 
So your status within a masculine group will be rejected if you're emotional. And then you're, you enter relationship, and I think regardless of whether you're in relationship with man or woman, but especially if you're in relationship with a woman, the woman's like, I need your emotionality. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, but if I give you that, I lose. And then you look at Brene Brown's research showing that when a man is emotional or cries in front of a woman, uh, a woman feels like she can't trust him. Yeah, unsafe. She didn't feel, yeah, she didn't feel supported. Like, how does a man even move? Because I think that's the opposite response of all this conversation that's happening in media is men then become boundaryless. They become, I don't know if the right term is feminized, maybe, but maybe that term in general then evokes like, well, what's wrong with feminism? Nothing. Nothing. But it's like, what's wrong with boundaries? But I think because the message, this was my experience growing up, I grew up in the, as a kid in the 80s and 90s, is like, I, confu- I was confused because no one explained it to me, that boundaries are different than being controlling. And I wanted to people please, and that's all adaptive strategies, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, I didn't know how to stand in boundaries and power because I was afraid of being like the men in the news. And the, you know, I wanted to prove how much I was different than the guy who's cheating on you or treating you like shit. I mean, that was my favorite, was, was, was to the save a woman. Right? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Dan? About all of that? I mean, yeah. <laughs> we just dropped a lot. <laughs> that, I'm like, it's gonna put What's a big your experience old... and what do you think about, about what I mean, when I hear all of that, it's just like, I instantly feel overwhelmed about the, the state of the world. And, and my brain starts to go to like, oh, how do you fix that? Very masculine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. And I don't know. There's, there's like no easy answers. And uh, I'm like learning these stats as you guys are dropping them. So I'm just like, wow, that's overwhelming. How have you related individually to the definition of masculinity and then the needs of relationship? Well, okay. I feel like out of my depth in this conversation around masculinity in the, in the scope of um, the, the social conversation, the bigger picture, uh, I can speak to you know my own experience in it, and when I get present to it, I guess I'm just like sad. I'm yeah. like sad for that that is the case for men. I feel very grateful because I'm like I'm surrounded by good men. Like he's like, where are all the good men? I'm like, my experience is like not that. Same. My experience is um, I have great men in my life that I can lean on. I'm so grateful for. I have you know uh, a partner that I can have conversations with be emotional with and like feel safe to be and if not there I can go to a group of men where I can be and um and so I feel like in my experience somehow I'm tripped and stumbled into like a a a very uh positive surrounding And, and so yeah mostly I feel overwhelmed I feel sadness and I feel grateful uh but was that was that your experience growing up Oh, no. Growing up, I had no role model. My parents uh, divorced when I was young. I sought uh, girlfriends that were uh, that had strong um, father figures. Oh, wow. Uh, to, I almost dated women for the father. Way to go. Because I still craved yeah. like, learning and like a model, somebody. Like, who can I learn from? And that was my... Like, the, the um, fathers were pastors, firefighters, police officers, oh, wow. um, mechanic. Need some skills there. Uh, yeah, and just, like, 
that was my way of, I guess, coping with the with the lack. I, I do think that like the isolation piece is such a huge one that you were talking about before. And I think, you know, in, in my in my past, that was a huge piece. You know, it's like I was hiding a whole bunch of my stuff in my life. Mm-hmm. And even though I had friends in my life, I had men in my life. I didn't talk to them about anything, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't open up. I didn't have the, like the conversations that I've had with each of you, like, especially you guys, cause I've known you for so long. None of that stuff got talked about, you know, it's like, how are things going? Good. How are you? Fine. And I think that that's the more common state for men in our culture and our society. Right. I mean, there was some, I promise it's probably like one of like the last pieces of data I'll put out, but there was a study that was um, done recently I think it was in 2022, and it found that 15% of men can't identify a closer best friend. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then, whereas in the 60s and 70s, men used to have six close friends, now it's down to the majority of men. I can't remember what the percentage is, but the majority of men have one or two. Mm-hmm. And so there's this there's this very interesting sort of like shrinking and contraction mm-hmm. contraction that seems to be happening for a lot of men. Culturally, socially, the networks seem to be sort of like collapsing in. And, you know, I think a lot of men, it it was interesting because this morning I run a like a membership for guys and we had a call this morning and one of the guys was talking about how he's married, he's got two kids and speaking of fatherhood and he just found out there's going to be a dad for the third time. Wow. Super stressed out. Wasn't planned, you know. He's on the call. He's in tears. He's pretty upset. And he had been talking about like the dichotomy. He's super excited. But on the other side, he's terrified because he's like, I'm the sole provider for our family. We have two kids. I don't know how to make the third work yet. And I don't feel like I have community where I live. And so I feel like I'm alone. And then layer on top of that, this man, when I started to dig in a little bit, had been married before and lost his first wife in her pregnancy. Oh, so man. he was 29, she was 26. Um, she was pregnant, she was six months pregnant. Something happened and she and the baby both passed. Mm-hmm. And he had, you know, he oh, had- Man, the depths of that grief. You know, he'd worked through some of that, but here he was when we when we really got into the sort of like depth of what was going on what was coming up for him and online for him in the moment it was like he has felt the pressure nobody told him this right nobody was like by the way you're going to do this but he had felt the pressure of i have to do everything in my power i have to sacrifice everything that i have to make sure that i can protect and provide for my family for my new wife and for my kids and the idea that he might not be able to do that in a robust way is like crippling. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't know about you guys, but that's something that I've, I've really grappled with, you know, like being a good provider and like protecting my son, you know, and I know we were talking about this the <laughs> other day and like where our brains can go. And so I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on one, the, do you see other men in your lives isolating? Like, is that a common track that we go on? And two, where does, like, where does your capacity, your role as a provider and a protector come in to your life? Because, you know, we live in a time where 42% of households, uh, women are the primary breadwinner, 
right? And so I think the roles of men where, you know, it was clear for a long time, um, and I'm not saying it's good or bad or anything that, you know, that has, that has changed, right? So I think that statistic around um, women being the large, a larger primary earners in the household, we need to look at the macro of what's happening in our world. And part of that is socioeconomically, we're being stressed as a collective and we're, we're being placed in greater survival mechanisms, like all of us, all of humanity is. And we're being forced to survive. And so people are doing what they need to do to survive. But I, I want to come back to the conversation of isolation. We are a rarity. The fact that we have close friends that you can pick up the phone and call at any point in the day is an absolute rarity. Make no mistake that the vast majority of the 4 billion or so men that are on this planet do not have access to that. They just do not have access to that. Even in my social groups, and I have so many, I feel very grateful. This hasn't been a wound for me. I haven't had the wound, and, I, and I'll just touch on why. So my, my upbringing was quite violent and very volatile and disorganized in my interpretation of my environment. And it was very scary, all the things, right? Because of that, it forced me to get out of home. And I forged these male friendships from a young age, from around the age 12, 13, from boys in my neighborhood that I put my trust in them because I couldn't put it into my father. Hmm. So luckily for me, for whatever reason, whatever God's grace, whatever it may be, I don't have that, that, that brother wound, so to speak. Um, I can trust men deeply. So I surround myself with men that are really fucking epic, case in point, right? Even in some of my men's groups, I do this myself and put my hand up as well. I still isolate. Mm -hmm. I still withhold. Yeah, I still don't allow myself to be fully messy. Mm -hmm. I do and I don't. It's, it's, that's part of my personality as well as you get to know me. But even in the, with the epic men that are in my life, I'm in a men's group, there's 13 of us, really adept men. They still, there's still withhold there. There's still a little isolation. So I can't be seen. And of course, it's the opposite of that as well. Like I allow myself to get super, super messy, but so much I lone wolf it. Mm -hmm. And it's not because what I'm, makes you go into the openness? Um, like, is it a? I'll tell you what makes me go into the lone wolf. Pure habit. Uh -huh. Pure. So you have to consciously be like, ah, oh, here I go is. again. Yeah, because uh -huh. I'm I'm really okay being vulnerable as far as I'm aware. Like, I can like when I self-assess, I have no problem crying. You know, back to your point around that that study with Brene Brown. I'm not familiar with that study, so I'm going to be speaking from uh, from an external place, like uh, sort of out here, not being familiar with the intricacies of the of the study itself. She just talks about it in her power of vulnerability talk. She mentions book, it in her okay. book. She well, I would say if I was to, I'm going to make a bet here. If I was to say if any one of you became all things being equal. Like if you're bringing massive amounts of volatility, of course your partner's going to feel unsafe. If your partner did that to you, even as a man, you would feel, well, emotionally right, unsafe. Right. But if you're just being emotional, do you think your partner, and you're being honest, do you think your partner is going to perceive you closer? Like they're going to, they're going to feel safer yeah. with you or unsafe? They're going to feel safer, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're, they're women that have done deeper work. They're more mature. They're more aware. You guys have a different connection. I don't think that's applicable to most people. Because women, generally speaking, are not accustomed to a man being emotional. They will interpret that as something that is, oh, he's un he can't be trusted. He's un or manipulation, or it's manipulation, yeah. or it's he's he's not stable. I can't be with someone that's not stable. Like all the all the rhetoric that comes with that, and so that's another conditioning that we have, right? It's like a layer on. It's like a risk that you take as a man that I don't think Doesn't most women register with, right? No. Like, oh, I'm t like. It is a risk. I talked about this when uh, in my book I wrote about the myth of male vulnerability and I talked about how like there's such an inherent risk 
for me to open up, even if it's to you or you or my wife or anybody, right? There's like an inherent risk, but especially with women and especially in like the early, early parts of the dating phase, it's like, hmm. oh, that's, that's yeah, you a hard You can lose it real one. quick. You can lose it. I mean, I've, I've experienced that. Like I remember dating a woman that I was super into and I was, op- I was, I like opened up and I was vulnerable and she was gone. Like within a week, I was, yeah. I was like validates. relationship terminated and I was like, oh man. Well, it does it, one of two things. It validates. Yeah. Well, it, it does, it does that. And then we have a choice to either retract or right. stay stronger into it's our It's not path. me, it's yes. her, can't hold that, whatever. <laughs> right. whatever but I think be. also the other side of that too is that when you are in that state of emotionality, if it is unintegrated emotion, like I think when- Messy vulnerability. Yeah, I think when you're like crying with your partner or someone you're dating, but it's because you actually haven't gone to the depths of your grief, your pain, your rejection, your abandonment. Because you haven't gone to the depths of your own emotionality. You're like hoping your wife or your partner can hold something you haven't. And it, of course, an integrated, someone who has space for that, that can participate in the healing of the witnessing of you. And I, it doesn't matter the gender of the mm-hmm. human. That's important. But man, I think so much when men start to touch emotion in the container space with a partner it's not been met like it's never been held and that's why i think healing with men is so that, important and that's why you know and you touched on this earlier connor around or you touched on this too Danny, around okay if, if i can't be that with my wife then i'm going to bring that to my men right. they're going to hold me they're going to witness me I'm, I'm going to be vulnerable with them and they're going to ideally meet me with compassion with non-judgment they're going to call me forward they're going to challenge me in healthy ways but they're not going to shame me Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're missing in as well. The, the shame piece. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 or the, the, I should say the, the, we're shaming each other way too much. I mean, and that's because our own self-worth is so low. And I'll speak from my own experience. I shame myself. It's going to be a natural propensity to shame others right. because I'm doing it to myself right. or judge others, whatever it may be, right? Magnesium is essential for life. It's an element and a mineral that's found throughout nature, and it's actually the fourth most abundant mineral in the body and is responsible for hundreds of enzymatic reactions. However, most of us actually fall behind in our daily intake of magnesium, which means our muscles, nerves, bones, and energy production just won't run as efficiently. But now you can get the magnesium that your body craves in an easy-to-take, eco-friendly capsule from one of my most trusted and favorite brands, Organifi. Now, magnesium is truly amazing. It supports bone and muscle health. It may help relieve occasional muscle cramps. It promotes nerve health, supports cellular energy, and it helps with energy production. It's one of the body's electrolytes, and it's essential for DNA synthesis, ATP and energy production, reproduction, blood sugar regulation, nerve transmission, muscle contractions, and obviously, so much more. Organifi's magnesium glycinate is gentle on the body, highly digestible, and does not cause gastric distress. On top of that, when combined together with one of my favorite products, Chocolate Gold, they make a great pre-sleep duo. So what's not to love? So whether you're looking to sleep deeper, have less stress, or add on the minerals your body needs, go to Organifi.com slash create the love and use the code create the love for 20% off your magnesium today. You'll actually get 20% off everything. Make sure you grab some of that Chocolate Gold. That's Organifi.com slash create the love and get 20% off with the code create the love. Let me tell you, as a new father, what's become abundantly clear is how important restful sleep is (laughs) for me. Not just to be present to life, to Jasper, to Kai, to my work, to creativity, but just so I can feel at my best. And I've been using this new product called the Hatch Restore 2, and it's this beautifully designed 
little unit that sits on your bedside table or wherever you want to put it. And it trains your body when it's time to sleep and when it's time to rise. And it uses light and sound cues. And it coaches you through meditations and mindfulness exercises. And what they do is they transform the time before and after sleep into these restful rituals. And I notice a difference in my resting heart rate when I sleep, my HRV. So with the Hatch Restore 2, you sleep deeply with this pink, white, or brown noise and other sleep sounds that are inspired by nature. So no more jarring alarms. Like we know that feeling, right? When it wakes you up immediately. This wakes you up over time with this sunrise alarm clock. So it supports your natural circadian rhythm. I have absolutely loved this. I can't recommend it enough. And listen, we all know great sleep can't be forced, but it can be learned. The Hatch Restore 2 can allow you to learn how to do that. So right now, Hatch is offering you, my listeners, $20 off the purchase of a Hatch Restore 2 and free shipping. All you got to do is go to hatch.co slash markgrove. So H-A-T-C-H dot C-O slash M-A-R-K-G-R-O-V-E-S. So hey, there's nothing I want more for you than to sleep deeply and wake gently. It's a real nice feeling and get $20 off and free shipping. So go to hatch.co slash markgroves. I always think like we try to save people from feelings we don't know the value of. And so we can't let someone sit in grief, sit in shame, sit and, you know, be with them. And so when we touch on the edges of our emotion, it's like, don't go there. Because if you're trading your masculinity, like to be emotional and open with your partner is to actually completely rebel against the definition of masculinity. And I think that I remember having someone in an audience once asked me, like, I have a son. How do I teach my son that emotions and and how to be emotional and also you know, see himself as masculine. Was it a mother or father? It was a mother. And Ideally, I, she's not doing that. When I say, oh, right, that's true. Well, let's get to that. But I said to her, like, teach him that those don't, those are not, they're, yeah. they're not coupled. Like emotionality and masculinity are not connected. And, you know, that seems, I'm lucky. Like my father was the one who talked to me about my relationships. Mm-hmm. He talked to me about my feelings. My mom did too, but my dad was just he was so curious about my relational experience and it really made me passionate about relationship. I didn't know that it would lead to this, but I feel so blessed because he went through a divorce before he met my mom. So there were so many messages I was taught mm-hmm. and, you know, my sister is from my dad's first marriage. So her experience is him and his previous partner and my brother and I's experience is my mom and my dad. And I realize how rare it is to have a father who's like, tell me how, What's going on in your relationship? Are you feeling okay? I remember once he said to me, I was complaining about my girlfriend when I was like 22. And I said, it was awful. Let me just, let me just prepare what I said. And I've changed. And I, let me apologize again to her. Uh, I remember saying she was complaining about something in our relationship, which she was certainly valid in complaining about. I don't remember what it was, but I already know it was valid. And I was such like, I was so avoidant that I didn't know my way of dealing with it would just be basically to gaslight her. But anyways, I said to my dad, like she had complained to, about something and I said, well, it's so bad, why don't you leave? And I told my dad this and my dad was like, oh, no, 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 that's what you said? And I was like, yeah, yeah, cause why shouldn't she? And he was like, a relationship is a separate organism. There is you and there is her and you must invest in the relationship. And I was like, sure, dad, whatever. I didn't get it, but it, you know, it was one of those things where you hear a sentence and it doesn't yet land until you need the wisdom that's innate in it, but it, it plants a seed. And I think about like 
how much we're not taught that. Mm-hmm. Like we're not, like I, I think about all the feedback I got from people like her where I didn't have the self-worth capacity to see that they were actually inviting me to be a better human. Mm-hmm. And now when Kai gives me feedback, most of the time, I'm like, thank you. So what's your experience with, with that? Like with seeing your partner and have you always done this, but seeing your partner's feedback as an invitation to your evolution as a man or, or a person? Very rarely, like right away. I'm, uh, the feedback <laughs> comes and I'm the like... The feedback loop has uh, a little X yeah, in it. Yeah, it's like... Same. Yeah, I... Uh, I wish I was better at that, but I'm, I'll get like very defensive and I'm like, oh, oh, I don't want to hear it. No, I'll sit with it. Let's not mistake that I'm saying I have mastery at this. I'm saying it's, I've got a little delayed. Yeah, there's absorption. a definite de- delay, but the same sentiment is there where I'm like incredibly grateful because I think she's probably a hundred percent. Like, <laughs> I think it's probably. I, I, Kim's listening to this. She's like, "That's that's right." I hate how much my wife is right. Uh, it like drives oh, me nuts. I'm not gonna tell Vienna. No, no. I already told. I told her like a <laughs> couple weeks ago. I was like, "The amount of times that you are right is obnoxious." Hi, <laughs> <laughs> so you. She is right and awful. Oh, uh, continue though. Continue. No, well, I mean, yeah, that's the. Uh, <laughs> that is it. But then it's it's taking the time to sit with it and and usually it's like when i'm doing something else and then it'll clip my, uh, and then there's like going back and and having that conversation deeper and um yeah like incredibly grateful that i have that i have a partner that will hold that mirror up for me and um have you always had that had a partner like that or the reflection of um no, but I've been invited to look at myself constantly uh, through different relationships and just like a constant invitation. And then I think I've been pretty good, like since for a long time, just like yeah. sitting with, reflecting, and my inner world is like rich. So I'm like, I, I sit with things uh, a lot and uh, contemplate and then and bring it into conversation. Something else that you said that was kind of like in my head, um, I, th- I think you were talking about the the wife who, who or the mother who brought the um, emotion out, like how do I teach my yeah. son to yeah. be emotional? And, and I've just been thinking about like as a man uh, who can access emotions and seeing like the value of that with two daughters and like their range and like not if not having the access to meet them in their emotional experience would be like saddening to me mm. uh, to, to, to not be able to like hold a space or have an emotional intelligence of, of just even holding the space for right. them to like express and, and to feel. Yeah. And I think that like my relationship with my partner continually deepens my capacity to hold my relation or like my emotions. And because there'll be a reflection like, Oh shit, to your point, I think like can't touch the shame piece. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a big thing. And, um, but all of them like grief or sadness or, uh, and usually like where my, I don't want to talk about it is cause like, I don't want to feel that emotion right away mm-hmm. or I don't want to be wrong or, you know, threatens my identity in some way. It makes me set, like such a bigger human to be able to hold uh, more space and 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 then that's such a gift to my kids. Yeah, being able to, yeah, just like be in the emotions and 
and let them have theirs. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to to witness and then see their growth and their okayness with emotions and the range of emotions. Yeah, I think in, you know, in response to your question, something that has been very alive for me and that I'm working on, you know, for the most part, you know, Christine and I, I think we do a, you know, really a really good, solid, sometimes not obviously, and often not actually. It, 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 it's as we're learning each other, and we thought we did know each other, and then we had a baby. Oh, yeah. yeah you have a baby that's just like, what's that? I mean, what, what's, what's happening what, now? What's happening? Like, right? yeah. I guess we're back in the, you know, whatever. Yeah. The, the realm of the shadow. Yeah. There's, <laughs> like, there's like pre-baby, and then there's post-baby yeah. oh, yeah. learning. Yeah. And there's layers of that. I remember it was a few months ago, we, we went into the spare room, and you know when, you, when, you, when you're scream whispering? Listen, I fucking told you that. You know, you're screaming, you're screaming, you're screaming whispering. And so yeah. a few months ago, we, we sort of hit that rock bottom and that's when we, we, we started turning tides because we knew that if we continued this way, we, we really wouldn't be able to stay together. So we had to make some changes. And this leads me to, to this point around, um, you know, that communication piece with, with my wife and hearing feedback from her. And for the most part, I get really excited to hear feedback from her because like what you both have shared, all three of you, sorry, have shared is that when my wife gives me feedback, most of the time it's pretty accurate and it is. And it's a perspective, even if it's inaccurate, right? Like it's a perspective that actually is very useful and helpful for me and it helps soften me. Is it always right in that moment? I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. It's definitely useful. Mm, Yeah, it really is. And so what I'm working on is being able to receive that because what tends to happen, especially when I'm stressed or overwhelmed, which my relationship to that word particularly overwhelmed was not very healthy. It was if I feel overwhelmed because that's just my truly what I'm feeling in this moment, I'm weak. Mm. It's that conversation of masculinity uh, and the definitions yeah. that we have of masculinity. I'm overwhelmed, I'm weak, I, I'm, I'm incapable, uh, I'm being the victim, I, I can't hold this, why can't I hold this? I should be able to hold everything. Yeah. So I've had to rework that relationship with overwhelm and stress, right? Mm. But when I am in that state and I feel or I interpret judgment or criticism from Christine, even if it's not there, I immediately become hyper-defensive. And this is a conditioned response, right? like from, from childhood. I, I become abrasive. I become sharp. I become impatient. I become very direct. I, I, I make my energy big because I feel threatened, so I start attacking, whether it's vocal or my physical presence. And I'm just not very nice. And I say I can say mean things. And I take ownership of that. And the reason why I'm taking ownership of that here, and it's not like I haven't done that before, but because it's something that is so important, I find, in relationship. If you, we all have, at some level, our own idiosyncrasies, our own patterns that really are unhealthy that we're trying to shift out of, even if it's in very subtle ways. This one, for me, is it's, it's it can be intense because it's part of my neurodivergence. It's part of the way my brain has processed trauma in the past. Yeah. And it's all about protecting myself. And I have to learn, I'm doing my best to learn in those moments that it's not It's not that. I, she's not attacking me. I, I'm not under any threat right. here. And you know what really reinforced this, why it's so alive for me the last week is because we were, we were here with a family, uh, Christine's family, and I was watching her sister, and or my sister, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, and they've been married for like 20-something years, right? Been together for 20-something years, I should say. And they were just interacting. And and she said something to to him that was, we'll just call it inappropriate. And it wasn't, it was mildly inappropriate, by the way. Yeah, it's just stuff that people say to each other. It's, right, you know, right. Whatever. And he just touched her hand and he said, it's okay, I got it. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, you're right, you do. Mm-hmm. 
So what could have been interpreted as emasculation? So do I. I'm like, why the fuck can't I do that? Everything's okay. Why can't I be like that? But it's so true. Why can't I? And I started thinking, I could take a leaf out of that. I could, what if I'm more calm? What if I, you know, as, as our mutual friend John Wynan would say, what if you just tussle a little more mm. with your woman? What if, what if the masculine just gets bigger in the healthiness of its masculinity and its own sense of trust and we become a little more playful in those moments? Not to uh, allow that behaviour to just continue if, if it's inappropriate, but to be kinder with that behaviour. What, what would maybe happen when we condition each other to like to treat to ask hey this is how I want you to treat me right I'm trying to get better at that because I'm I not want so to good do at that it. I'm <laughs> use that I mean that what you're speaking to to me is just like I've been because you know Jasper's now just over four months old sleep is more rare for her but rare for me but much more, more rare, rare for her she's constantly in the Jasper constantly needs her. And I noticed, like, I remember thinking the other day, because my reactivity is more. Hers is a little, is more. And we, we had some conversation where I was like, is the, this can't be the language we get to. Like, this can't be, like, let's not let this, like, let's use this as the dojo. And I was just listening to the book Letting Go by David Hawkins. And in it, he talks about this observation of emotion, but letting it pass, not judging it, not, okay, but letting it pass and allowing what is trying to be birthed. And man, that's been so relevant to me and what you're speaking to too. It's like, will we ever be in this container of like exact ingredients that are like, I'm doing work I've never done this tired, this relational with a third entity that actually we're modeling things for. And I'm like, man, you know, it's like uh, Francis Weller, I remember said like, don't waste a good divorce. Like don't yeah. waste this material. Yeah. Learn and from I, it. I really from thought it. that yeah. like, oh my God, there, there's something happening right now that is so designed for my unresolved mm -hmm. defensiveness. I even get emotional thinking about it. Cause I'm like, there's still so much more to it. I thought it was done. I found that it, like the hard, the hard part for me that I really struggled with is because I, I'm always thinking about like masculinity, our roles as men, you know, modeling and that type of stuff. And I find that it's hard to separate sometimes often who I am from my performance, who I am from what I'm doing. Yeah. And so oftentimes when my, when my wife, when Vienna's like giving me feedback around something and she can be spicy, she can also, the delivery can be lacking sometimes. <laughs> But, and so can mine, this isn't to like blame her, but, um, she'll, you know, she'll come to me and she'll say something around something that I've done or something I've said or something that I missed because I forget shit sometimes. And immediately my defensiveness is coming from this place of if I did something wrong, I am wrong. Right. If I haven't uh, performed so the too. way that I should have, like, I feel that I don't. And, you know, we could talk about whether that's social conditioning or you know, masculine expectations, blah, blah, blah. But I think that so many of the men that I've seen over the years, and I'll just bring it back to me personally, but for me personally, because of my upbringing and because of the pain that I experienced and the trauma and sometimes the abuse, I convinced myself somewhere along the line that if I could just perform perfectly, then I'd be okay. Mm -hmm. 
And in a relationship, it, I've, I've really struggled because I've had to swallow the tough pill of perfectionism never exists. <laughs> right. And it's not the answer. Yeah. And it's not the salvation that I was hoping for. And so it's been very interesting to open myself more and more and more to the feedback and to have these conversations and to grow. And, you know, like I said, like V is, you know, she's one of the best marriage and couples therapists in the world. She's just phenomenal. And so she's very attuned. She's very sharp intuition. But to hear that sometimes is really hard. The dial of pressure. Like I felt this inordinate amount of like, I have to figure out a whole bunch of shit immediately to make sure that my family is tended to, taken care of and protected. And not because my dad or my stepdad ever told me that that was something that I, that I should do. Like my, I never heard those things. You see those things? In them? Mm. Not really. Did you see it in like culture, media? Maybe a little bit here yeah. and there. Um you know what it you know what it what it actually is 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 it's the thing that I I always really wanted and didn't really get. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. I really it was avoiding your life. I didn't get the protection. And now here you I are. I didn't get the like providing. I saw siblings getting it. I saw other people getting it. I saw friends, you know, buddies getting it. And I was like, man, like that would just be nice. And so I felt this internal pressure and deep tension to like provide this perfect security net the dream, you know yeah, like, for my son and for my wife and were you grieving as you were doing it too oh yeah yeah oh, that's brutal yeah yeah, yeah it was just i was like oh man like all this stuff is coming up you know and so uh, that's been the interesting part for me is is that letting go of that connection to perfection you know mm-hmm. letting go of that that connection to like if I get this wrong, it doesn't mean that I'm wrong. You know, that like classic. Yeah, that you're unworthy or not needed. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's that voids becomes your values. Right? I remember many years ago hearing Dr. John D. Martini say that. Yeah. Our know, greatest voids, voids become, become our greatest yeah. values, right? Mm-hmm. But I think what what's, what I didn't hear him say, not because he doesn't maybe think it, I don't know, but what I think is missing in that or what needs to be added to that statement is that as our voids transition to our values, if we don't grieve those voids, those values are really still voids because they're compensatory. Yeah. yeah. And, and and we're wearing yeah. masks and we can't you're sustain them. them. They're mm-hmm. they're they're running you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, which is so the way we run in relationship, we orient from our wound, not the space of wisdom of the where the wound is. You touched on this earlier and I wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on it. Because traditional masculine roles, so to speak, of providing have been so shamed, and then we also have this movement of uh, soul, like primary breadwinner, etc., is there seems to be a, a real, in my experience, and I'm super open to any thoughts or feedback on this, but it's like, in my experience, there's really not much value in society to the men providing now. It's almost like... You know, I find myself in this strange space. Hashtag homogenization. Right, right. Yeah, everything's everything is everything. So what do you guys think about that? Because to me, I'm like, there's this innate pressure to provide, of course. I'm Kai's not working right now. I'm working, I'm, you know, providing. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there's a demand for my presence, which is totally expected and normal. I'm not complaining about that because I want to be present. So I feel like I'm trading like providing because I have to go do the thing and I'm missing 
this other thing. And my wife is going like, oh, you got to go do that thing again. Ah, and I get it. Like, that's not coming from a malicious space. It's coming from like, I want you more with our son. Great. I get that. But I'm like, oh, shit, there's and and it's almost like society doesn't value the providing part, you know, that that is, a, you know, it's kind of like for women. It's like if you're not a boss babe crushing it, then your value is not there. So mm. what do you guys think about this pressure to provide and how do you relate to it? So I'll, and I'll just really speak from my own direct experience the last 15 months. I'm deeply passionate about who I am in the world and what I do and what I'm creating. I, I love creating. I'm sometimes just up at night um, after everyone's gone to sleep. Uh, not so, sometimes writing, but typing, uh, creating, setting up um, containers for creation for the next day and the next week and ideating and, and dream weaving. And I just, I love it. And I love being with my family. Genuinely love watching my daughter. Like, today was difficult. Like, I had her until 9.30. We were together until 9.30. But then I, I just was working all day and I, I don't get to put it down tonight because I, I want to spend some time with some men and some friends and, you know, right. get to know you guys. And so there's this trade-off and, and that's the pressure as well. And yeah. then I also have Christine saying, I would love for you to spend more time with us. So I've, I've reorientated, oriented, oriented my, reoriented my calendar so I can be more available to my family but also be more available to myself because mm -hmm. I'm finding that I was finding that there's just no play. But I think it's a very natural yeah. pressure. And, and I was thinking about this earlier, and I can't remember what prompted it, but it was around this conversation of masculinity and protection and provision, right? And when we look at – and emotionality, that's what it was, and it was emotionality. When we look at the beginning of our conversation around some of the most dangerous jobs, in, including military, is occupied by men. Mainly, yeah. And in, in jobs such as that or roles or positions or expressions of the world in the world such as that where you're spending so much of your time in that and you're conditioned by that, there is very little space for emotions. You, in the middle of the battlefield, you're not going to say, hold oh, a sec, I'm just going to cry. Yeah. I'm just going to let some shit Can you give me grief. a safe space right now? Just, just don't yeah. shoot me just yet. Yeah, what's, the, what's the trigger warning for war? How do you, <laughs> right, how do you right, put that right. out? It's like, Your gun is making me feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, like, could you not shoot at me? Just, just stop. Just don't do that. Don't, yeah. Please don't do that. I just yeah. need it. So we've been conditioned not to be in that space. And, and when you look at the world, man, the world has been in war for a very long time. There's very, very small times of peace. So small, small amounts of time of peace. So if that even exists. So I think there's this deep, deep conditioning of providing and protecting. Now, when, when your baby comes, man, my baby came and I, and I, I held her and I saw her exit my, 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 my wife's vagina exit out of her womb and, and she was holding this beautiful little thing in her belly, in her womb, and then it's out here. And, man, something just changed in me. Like, I, I just mm – -hmm. and, and so I started hype, becoming hyper-focused. Now, I already can be very hyper-focused. I can already be very achievement and goal-orientated. So that went through the roof. But at the same time, I had promised Christine and myself, I'm going to take some time off, like three months, and I did. But, man, was it hell. Was I it hell? It was fucking like, hell. It wasn't even three months, I don't think. It was hell, man, because I wanted to be there, but I wanted to be here. And I was in so much grief and so much pain and so much confusion. And I shared all of this with my, my men. I was crying every day, man. I didn't know what to what do. What was the tension there? That I wanted to be in all places uh, at once. Yeah. I want, because what was happening for me, and I think this is part of that conversation, I think, I think some people could relate, is that I thought 
that if I'm not doing the thing that I've been accustomed to doing, by the way, the year before that, biggest year financially that I ever had. Right. And it was such an amazing year in terms of productivity and connection and creation. And now to go from that to that, because I'm not, I'm literally not working now. If I'm not doing, I'm not of value. I'm not worthy. Right. I'm not me. So all these layers of identity are just li- leaving just me. dying. Dying. With and birth. With birth, yeah. yeah. And so there's this birth and there's this grief and there's this loss. And so what do I do? I'm going to go back to what's familiar because that's what the ego likes. My ego is like, well, if I just go back to, you know, creating a little more and doing more videos and doing this and running that business and even though I said I'm going to take some time off, and I'm not a micromanager, by the way, very far from it, but I'll just do more of that so I don't lose my identity. But what I'm losing and what I was losing was connection with my family very that I'll never get back. I'm curious if you had like a moment or like all of you, like when your children were born, if you had like a, like I had a particular moment that was hard to explain really, but I was like dancing with my newborn daughter. And the first one, when my first daughter was born, it was like this visual that was like so clear in my head uh, and it speaks to the protection piece, but it was, I could just see uh, almost like, like my role was being defined in an image and it was uh, holding a, a space, which was like a half circle. And it was my little family unit in the middle and the back was open, but the front was uh, just like a half circle. And my, and then it was like expanding and it was like that was my job or like a, purpose like a shield or, moving forward it was a shield world. moving yeah. forward and creating a bigger and bigger space for them to be and for them to become and then and mm-hmm. also that the back is wide open that they can leave mm-hmm. and go whenever they want and like however however it's supposed they're free to be that way and um it was like this beautiful moment where i'm just like crying looking at this new baby and that like sunk in mm-hmm. and then this strangest thing this is like really these kind of like anchor moments because when my second daughter was born which uh so my wife in the when Romy she was born uh she gave birth she's a warrior I mean all her wives are but she gave birth downstairs no this story is wild <laughs> he's on a call with us uh, yeah I'll share it like like the, the not the full birth story but uh you know my wife went shopping at Costco <laughs> and then came back and I was on a call and um and she comes back at four o'clock and I like put in like yeah hey, I doing good she's got groceries and stuff and then at 5 15 like the the call is over and there's like a missed text and she, we had we're planning a home birth and um but uh i get a text she's like can you come downstairs and i was like yeah and i was like oh okay maybe it's go time and go downstairs and she's like on the ground and i was like oh okay it's go time like what do what do you need she's like no the baby's here what the (laughs) (laughs) it was by herself 15 minutes delivered it by herself it was just like a beautiful uh, moment, like at home, uh, just us. And then, uh, but after everybody had gone to bed, I was sitting um, in the, in my office. And my office was, uh, has all the wires, uh, con- you know, cameras and lights and mics and all the things. And I, I, they, in that instant, they looked like chains. And I was like, oh, that, that's weird. And then my eye caught, uh, there's like a surf skate in the corner of my office that I rarely use. And I, as I see, see it, a godlike, like a, I don't know, some, like a, an audible voice. And it was just like, what kind of dad do you want to be? 
And, uh, but not like my own thinking. It was like a, that was a new sound inside my head. Yeah. And it was just like a, like a profound moment of just, and then I spent the next few hours like contemplating that, right? Mm. What kind of dad do I want to be? Do I want to be the dad? Contemplate that every day. Right. Yeah. Um, And yeah. And every day since. But I'm curious if, if there's like, uh, you know, as you went, as you've had your, um, children, are there like, is there been like a, a moment or a profound, like, like something that has, uh, not just the chemical cocktail, but like a download of sorts of like, oh, like this is something different. I think for me, man, I think every, every day I can say this with a lot of certainty every day up to about maybe 12, 13 months old, she's 16 today, as I, as I mentioned, 16 months old, 16 months young today, every day up until about 12 or 13 months, I would cry every day looking at her. Mm. That was my awakening revelation. Just, just I would look at her and watch her smile or watch her move or watch her roll or watch her sleep or whatever it was yeah. and just cry. Mm-hmm. Every day. And now maybe it's like once or twice a week, three times a week or something. depends. Mm-hmm. It's That to me, it's, it's the compound effect of that that is awakening within me. And I, and I want to be super That's clear. Cool. Yeah. I, and I want to be super clear on something as well. It's, it's not like all I did was go and work and I neglected my family. Yeah. Was, it, it's that it was an internal tug of war. Mm-hmm. But it did affect my presence. When I was with my family, there was sometimes a vacancy or a distance in because I was thinking about where I could be, mm. which is and where I'm not. <laughs> yeah, you know, when I noticed when I was holding Jasper, trying to get him to sleep, he was crying, like maybe we were six weeks in. And I remember thinking about how many things I had to do. Mm. And I had this strange resentment that he wasn't going to sleep mm. and I needed him to go to sleep because I had so much to do. And I was thinking like, yeah. this is a strange paradox to hold like a part of me is dying and that part of me is the part that my life is oriented around me generally in my calendar to now it's now oriented around him and it should be and I think that's a constant resistance that people can have is they never actually transition or don't transition Mm -hmm. at all Mm -hmm. and I could feel this part of like no no like it, it ain't about you and that what I've noticed too is like when he was first born I held him and when he was inside, I had I would grieve, like not grieve, I would cry a lot. And during the birth process, good Lord, like I was just like watching her was making me so emotional. But it was a 32-hour labor. It wasn't 37 minutes like you're like. <laughs> and so, you know, I shared on a solo episode I did just saying like it was so crazy to be in this space where I knew that the birth was going to end, but we were 16 hours in or something. And I was like but I didn't know how it was going to end. And the that long time was already a lot to be like, is she going to be okay? Is he going to be okay? Are we going to need to go to a hospital? Are we not? And then when it finally was done and I couldn't resolve her pain. And to be fair, she didn't need me to. Between contractions, she was like, hi, everybody. Like fucking war. <laughs> and I was like, shit, I'd have melted. Like get me something. And she was just fucking lasered. And I remember holding him. And I didn't have access to the same grief or like emotion that I had when he was inside. Mm. Like I held him and he cried to the first moments breathing. And that was like, holy Lord. But when I was holding him, I was like trying to, I think I came up with all these expectations of what that moment would be like. And I felt like I was struggling to feel to connect to that moment. Mm. And I don't know why, but it was interesting because I had almost like shame 
that I didn't feel as emotional as why was I emotional inside the womb? It made no sense to me, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure what your guys' experience was. Because in my head, I was like, everybody the moment the dad has ended the baby is like, oh. And I was when his head popped out. <laughs> I mean, I think a, a little bit of that, I'm like when Code was inside. I mean, first off, my wife was like training like Rocky Balboa. Like she was she getting was like boxing. She was getting ready yeah. for birth. You know, it's like a, she was on a mission, and it was so cool to like watch. I was like, she, I mean, she was just like, you know, she was doing the class, and she was, you know, prepping for it and all this stuff, and talking to her women and whatnot. And it was interesting because for months I was like, I have no idea what to expect, and I just kept up leading up to the birth. I felt a lot of fear around losing my freedom and like a really, really deep, and I didn't know how to get over it, but it was like grief. Did you have shame? Anger, frustration, a little bit of, a little bit of shame. I didn't feel too bad about it. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I felt bad. I felt shame afterwards. No, I mean like shame that you even had this fear of losing Ah, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Or uh, guilt. A, a little bit. Yeah, a, a little bit of like guilt um, for sure. And, uh, you know, I think what was interesting is that I had really, what I realized is I really built a life that I loved, you know, and I built, a, I built a relationship I loved, I built yep. a business that I loved, I built the life that I loved, and I was like, holy shit. And it was this beautiful moment of, of recognition that I had done something that I didn't know if I would accomplish. And then on the other side, there was the grief of, I... At one point in my life, things were pretty rough and pretty bad. I think we've talked about this before. And I never, um, I can make me emotional, there it is. I didn't think I would get to this point, you know, like where I would be able to have a kid because I thought I'd be dead. And so leading up to it, it was like really emotional because I was like, man, I didn't think I'd make it this far. You know, like I didn't think I'd make it to this point where I'd be married and be having a kid. And so I had no vision of what that would look like because mm -hmm. I just didn't think that I would have made it here. You stopped planning. Yeah, I stopped planning. Uh -huh. Like I just had stopped, you know, planning and then to be there and to be in the moment of like, okay, she's pregnant and this kid is coming and all this kind of stuff. It was, you know, it was a lot to, it was a lot to process and work through. And then that's when, a large continuation. That's a large, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. And then so, but now, you know, I think to your initial question, um, there's been so many moments along the way mm -hmm. of having like the, the first one was after he was born, our, our birth was a little bit different because my wife and code had some complications. And so he, um, you know, we've talked about this, I can share it openly, but she had to have an emergency C-section because the cord was around his neck and he was not okay. Mm -hmm. And so he had to come out. And so for me, the first little while was a little disheveling because it was earlier than expected and my focus was on like is he okay is he going to be okay and then is she okay because she's just gone through something that's you know i'm i was in the operating room i was there i was holding her hand i was talking to her and like you know being present with her she's going through this experience and i'll never forget our our birth doula Vienna's getting prepped for the surgery and we're sitting out in the waiting room and she's like, okay, a couple of things, because we haven't talked about this, um, but number one, I don't recommend looking. And number two, you're probably going to notice that at certain times, like she's going to get being jarred around and moving and she's going to be like pale and clammy and all this kind of stuff. And so she's walking me through it. 
And so I think something happened in that moment where I went into like protect mode. And so it took me a little while to come out of that. So even when he was there and, you know, the few weeks after coming back home, mm -hmm. I was in protection mode. And then also like, because she was so immobile, I was doing everything. So it's that. Right. So you're in protection mode, you shut off from your emotions. Yeah. Because you have to be so direct. You got to do it. Right. I'm like, survive, okay, I got to take care. Survive, survive. Right. Got to take yeah. care. Got to take care of them. And it was funny because once she started to become mobile again, and that shifted, then I started to like crack apart, mm -hmm. you know, Maybe and that's what I and started to like just get a little bit more, uh, more access to my emotions. And I remember it all shifted this one night because he was he was up. He'd been up for like two hours and he was crying. And, you know, just, he's like a couple months old. And I don't I don't remember what happened. Maybe it was like three or four months old. And we just couldn't get him to go back to sleep. He was just, you know, pretty upset. It's like three o'clock in the morning. I'm sleep deprived. And I just remember this, like, I'm going to take care of it happened inside of me. Like, I will fucking deal with this. And so I, like, sat up. I threw the pillow across the room. My wife tells this story all the time because she thinks it's, like, the funniest thing. And I get out of bed and I was like, give me the baby. <laughs> it reminds me of what Christmas is. Yeah. It's like, let me swaddle that child. And, yeah, no, no, it's a funny scene. And she breaks out laughing. Like, cause I am just like, give me the baby. Like I'm going to fucking deal with this. And she breaks out laughing and she's like, there is no way in hell you are getting the baby. And she just <laughs> looks at me, no way I'm giving you code. And she's laughing cause I'm so serious. And I'm like, and then I There's start no laughing. I'm like laughing and crying, you know, it's like three o'clock in the morning. And I was like, okay, everything's going to be okay. Mm. Like we're okay. She's okay. He's okay. Like we're, we're okay. And, and then I could soften, you know? And so I think that was one of the moments, naming him was one of the moments. And I've just had all of these moments where as he's gotten older, he just wants to do everything with me. Yeah, he's like, a daddy. He, How old is he? He's two years and four months. That's great. And so like in the morning, he's gotten into my routine, you know? He'll come outside with me and stretch in the morning. And it's pretty funny. so I'll say stretch and he'll go through the exercise. He does downward dog and he does like all the stretches with me and there's, there's just all of these moments where, I mean, it's just the most beautiful thing where I've just felt connected to him. So, yeah, those are those are some of the clutch ones I would say. Nice. Yeah. I really, uh, I like, I like what you shared around the freedom piece. You know, I was thinking about, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Big, biggest. Biggest wound and biggest value for me. It's the most important thing to me. One of the most important things, and same. it's yeah. my biggest same. wound. Same. You know? And I yeah. live in the same space within me. It's tough. Yeah. It's interesting too, because culturally, that conversation about freedom, or even the word freedom, is considered far right now. Right. But it's like <laughs> and, and working out apparently. Yeah. Oh yeah, I saw that. What's that? Article We're, that working out uh, fitness and health. Fitness is, is a far right. <laughs> yeah, fitness is far right. If you want to be healthy and in shape. Yeah, you're a alt right. You're alt right. QAnon. Oh yeah. my god. But you, you know, that, that's what's so interesting is like, you don't really know the value of freedom until you don't have freedom. And like you don't know the value of what people fought for till it's taken away or the goalposts keep being moved to take it away or whatever anyone's thoughts are on that. The, but when we are in that challenge relationally, like, you know, Mark, this, you should just stick to relationships and not be a geopolitical commentator. Have you ever had anyone say that? <laughs> <laughs> never, yeah, I'm sure you've never heard that in the last 24 hours. Stay in your lane. Stay in, Stay your, in lane. your lane. It's my favorite one. I'm like, 
everything. I built the fucking road. It's my road. Like, Fuck you. That's exactly the clap. Right. Has everyone heard "Stay in Your Lane"? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah oh, it's my, my favorite. Uh, because you don't have the capacity to hold different. I'm a super highway motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> Cosmic super. Exactly. But I think like that. Actually, this is a great segue. I didn't plan this, but do you? What do you think the appeal is? And I think this is very topical. But what do you think the appeal is for men for things like Jordan Peterson or Andrew Tate or even like I would imagine that what is associated with someone like Trump is more male voters. Like that would just be my guess. I think it's quite simple and there are layers to it as well. But if we just start with the the simple maybe is that I think we're in a society where we are a bit hypersensitive. Um, There's a little bit too much of... Uh, the the PC culture that is happening and it's not a bad thing necessarily because part of it I see it as a movement towards greater equity in our society and and again the the desire to be seen and witnessed and so forth I think it is taken to extremes but I also see that we often work that way in the world in our individual lives we you know what the pendulum's here swings that way and then eventually you know we come into some form of middle path right but I think the appeal for people like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate is they're speaking just very directly to the thing that hasn't been spoken to. And I think you couple that with the fact that so many men in our society are feeling oppressed maybe, or feeling, oh, I don't know if I say that thing, I'm gonna get slandered, so I better not say anything, so I'll just keep hiding. So they develop a pattern of isolation and withdrawal. And these men are coming out, or men like that are coming out and saying, hey, this, this, and this really matters. You really matter. You're important. Like, oh, Men I, matter. I, yeah, I am Right wing. Like they're afraid to be considered right wing. Uh, I mean, I don't see that as any. I don't see that as a political affiliation. Right. I, just think, I think humans matter. Really, and I mean that. And and, and in, a, in a day and age where men, it's it's we are we are on. We've spoken about this earlier in the pod. We're on shaky ground, and men are coming out like that and, and being very direct and very clear, and essentially being a stand for men and masculinity. It's appealing. Like because the, well, the, men the, are going, fuck, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Like someone saying, I should live. Yes. I have value. And I, and I matter. Right. Like there's, there's, there's something sound. about that. And so I think that's why they're um, – and, you know, timing matters as well. I think they're, they're, the timing of their, their message. And, and, again, their message is also very quite different, broad. Too. Very different. Yeah. But their messages are broad. And some of what Andrew Tate says makes sense to me. Well, all of it makes sense to me. I just don't agree with all of it. Same. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of deep-rooted hypocrisy in, in what, he, what he shares. And some of the things that he shares – I, he I says some like crazy controversial shit, and then other times I'm like, well, that's actually a valid point. Yeah, and that volatility though makes him unsafe and unstable, and that you know you sort of look and read between the lines as well. Yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. another conversation. <laughs> I agree. I, th- I think that when I, I think a couple of things. One, we have dislodged and degraded male and masculine value culturally and socially. And so whenever you dislodge and devalue something culturally and socially, there's going to be a natural repulsion to that movement. So the more that men are told things like, you don't matter, or you, your opinion doesn't matter, or you shouldn't talk, or you you've, know, done, this, you've, you've done, done this, you've done that, like you're the problem for everything. You know, there's, there's sort of notion that 
like the patriarchy is to blame for absolutely everything and that men aren't needed. Like there's, you can go online, I've, I've done this, I've talked about this before, you can go online and Google um, what would the world look like without men or what would the world be like without men? And it's, and it's like this is complete- Is it great? Is it dystopian and good? <laughs> it's terrible, yeah, it's brutal. So I think anytime that you degrade or dislodge, right, masculine values, male values, or, or not even values, but values. value to the culture and to the society, when you continue to tell man you're not wanted, you're not needed, I think that that in itself is a dangerous modality. We would never do that. You know, the, the inverse of that would not be allowed. It's oh my God, not healthy. You said that? Right. And to so, any other group other than men. Right. To any other group other than men, right? Really that would be. Can we hold that truth? Like, that's interesting because interest, right away you'd hear, oh, well, they get everything. They da, 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 da. Sure. Like, we can hold all the complexities of intersections and all that. But still be like, oh, and it's the I remember when I'd see language about men online. And I was like, man, if you were to do that about women, yep. you would be fucking dead. There's a massive, massive Just hypocrisy. what we tolerate from language to speak about men. And you've seen like memes about men in relationship or yep. whatever. It so, you know, I think that's one part of it where it's going to create a natural rebellion or revolt against it, right? It's like this is just a very basic psychological or spiritual principle in which if you internally, if you took something like anxiety, if you hate your anxiety, you're going to produce more of it. Yeah. Yeah. If you rebel against your anxiety, you're going to produce more of it. The, the pathway is always towards integration, Balance. wholeness, yeah. of acceptance of learning to be in relationship with that thing that's challenging for you. And so culturally, what we've done is we've tried to create a political system, a media conversation that is at war with masculinity and and men, not all the time. But I think in general, there is a de uh, a devaluation of what men bring to the table. So I think that's one part. And then the other side of it, um, I thought about this a lot, and I think there is a, a vacuum or a vacancy of proper masculine archetypes within our society. And so going back to what we were talking about before, right? One in four kids are gonna grow up without a father figure. Well, especially those young boys, they are going to be impacted, right? Young boys that don't have a father figure around are far more likely to drop out of high school. They are far more likely to end up in prison. They are far more likely to be diagnosed with some adverse behavioral disorder. And so when they don't have a father figure, it's not that they don't want one, it's that they begin to look for that father figure in places um, like social media. And so for me, I think that people like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate, they represent the archetype of masculinity, right? Andrew Tate represents an, an aversion, an archetypal version of masculinity. Kickboxer, kickboxer, right? He's got the Bugatti and all the women and the whatever. And I'm not saying that that's right. I'm simply saying that he represents an archetype of masculinity to a lot of specifically young men who have a void of masculinity in their lives and are being told masculinity is wrong or bad or toxic and you shouldn't do all of these things. And Andrew Tate is representing, again, I'm not saying it's right or good or bad or anything like that. What he's doing is representing the anti-narrative mm. to toxic masculinity. He's like, I'll be the world's most successful man while representing exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And so, and then I think Jordan Peterson represents the father archetype. Yeah. He is 
the father that so many young boys and young women have wanted. Um, and again, I'm not saying that he's always right or that I always agree with him or I, you know, I'm on board with everything if that he you says. you suggest that, <laughs> it means everything or nothing. Right. But I do think that for a lot of young folks and for a lot of people in general, he is, he's the embodiment of this father archetype that, you know, is well-spoken and kind of quirky and charismatic well-dressed and like telling you to do simple shit like clean up your room but uh, you have to remember a lot of people just didn't get that just that didn't hear that one thing thing, like you should clean up your room and you should you know have more structure in your life and you should take care of the things that are around you and it's like well some people just never heard that shit and so to get that type of archetypal order is Something that all of us deeply need, especially young young boys and young men. I mean, I see it in my son already. It's like there are moments where if I wasn't around, like I think my wife would be like, okay, what do I do? Like he's got a lot of energy. He's throwing the truck into the wall. Like how do I handle this? And, you know, there's a very different energy that I think that a father brings to the table. So I I think those are some of the things that that definitely play into it. I think think to even build off that, and and you're right around the, again, to me it comes to the familiarity that young boy, your boy, wants to be shown by someone that looks familiar to him. Mm -hmm. Because there's a relatability that is, there's a depth of relatability that takes place. But also in a world where so many men don't have much. They're either living in poverty or they're dreaming really big but aren't there yet or may never get there, are in low, in, stuck in low in patterns of low self-worth. They're seeing these wildly successful men not only tell you how to be but show you how to be, at least that's the perception, right? right. Whether Andrew Tate has a lot of money or not, who knows, you know, but it seems that he does. It seems that he has all these cool toys. There's exclusivity there, right? There's there's character there. There's uh, this version of, wow, I've got access to all these resources. You can too. Because yeah. you know what? You know, you emulate me. Emulate right. me, right? Yeah. And so there's another reason why these men are looking up to these men. The, the, the large community and droves of men are looking up to these men and saying, well, that could be me. And so there's this... Hope that's instilled in them. I can be that person. I can have the riches. I can have the resources. I can have the women. I can have the fame. I can talk really smoothly. I can, you know, be coherent in the things that I'm saying. And with Jordan Peterson, I think he nailed it with that 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 archetype of father. And that's something that's, you know, one in four children are not going to have their parents. Are not going to have their father prominent in their lives. I mean, that's that's a lot. Is it one in four? Is that one, it's one in four. At the moment, it's probably going to be, I'd say, even a little higher, right? Yeah. You know, and this is maybe a rabbit hole we don't want to go down right now, but rites of passage. I didn't have rites of passage, effective rites of passage for my father. My father didn't didn't take me and say, I love you and, and now you're about to go into this journey and your uncles and your and your your father's brothers and your father's friends are going to be here and they're going to meet you on the other side of that and we're going to support you and I'm going to let you be now but you got this. You never got any of that. No. I mean, we we live in a society where your where your rite of passage is oh you, you know you're 18 or 21 and you can drink now you you're 16 or 17 and you right, can drive yeah, license you can yeah. vote you can whatever you vote like vote for what for fucking two donkeys like, yeah. like, <laughs> like what are you, you know like where's the where's the deliberate transition from boyhood to manhood. I mean, even the term teenager is a very new term. But my point is that these men, men like that, are showing the world that 
at, at some level, there's some expression of man. And when you are a man, when you're not really a man, you're stuck in your man, your boy stuck in a man's body. You haven't really matured and you're seeing this man be a man. That is very appealing. That is like, oh, you've been through right. that thing, that journey. You've been through that hero's journey. You've been through that transition. I want that. I'm hungry for that. I'm going to do what you do. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to trust you because I never had that growing up. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that's another reason why I think they're so fucking appealing. What's the, what's the quote of like most men live a life of quiet desperation, right? Just sort of like longing and hoping. And so when you have, you know, when you have somebody like Tate who is living in a very unapologetic way. Gary living in yeah. a very clear way, right? He's like, this is who I am. Lock this is what I, this yeah. is what I care about. This is what I don't give a fuck about. I don't, I don't care if you don't like it or not. There's something, I, I think what often gets missed. That's inspiring. Mm-hmm. I think, Clarity is inspiring. Right, right. I think inspiring. that that's, that's what oftentimes I think gets missed from maybe not like women per se, but people that are disconnected from masculine tenants is that it is inspiring to have clarity, to have direction, to have Service. authority. Because I think what we all know as men is that that is attractive to almost all women. You know, if you're a man that has- Every pickup artist teaches right. to pretend Pretty, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and that is the fucking problem that's with the right, right. right. yeah. relation the yeah. pretend, the mask. Yeah, because yeah, when right? shit hits the van, you're still the boy. And you don't right? know what to do. But I do think that it's, it's a, it's a marker of like this decay within masculinity culturally, you know, this decay that has been happening where we've, where we've dislocated the value of men and masculinity. And, and I think that we as men have played into that as well. You know, I think, I think that we, and you know, part of it, I don't think we need to go down that path, but I think part of it is, you know, we sent, millions and millions and millions of men to war in World War II and the the trauma effect of that that rippled through men in Canada and America and all over Europe and all over Russia is is hard to even quantify. Men coming yeah. home with slogans like suck it up, you know, stuff it down. I mean, suck it up came from a, a pilot term that said like when you are pulling too many Gs and you puke into your air mask, you suck it up and swallow it. And that's where the, that's part of what Damn, the I didn't came know from. that. That's yeah. not ideal. And so, you know, I think there's like this ripple effect of us coming back disconnected from, or having like a new orientation around what it means to be a man after this, you know, global traumatic event. And we're sort of like repairing through generations of what it means to be a man, what it means to be connected to your partner, what it means to be a father, what it means to contribute to society. I think all of those things are starting to happen. I think there's a lot of people that are doing work around it. And then I think there's a lot of, there's some grifters, you know, like there's just, there's like, there's guys that are out there that, you know, that are are grifting off of it a a little bit. And and what's interesting, I'm I'm actually curious to get your take on this because most of the guys that are watching people like Tate, his audience is really heavily between like 13 and 27. Yeah. They're super, super young boys. Tells you something though about right? culture, right? And I'm like, that part is interesting to me. I'm like, why? Because I think about my son, you know, in a decade, watching somebody like Tate and just being like super. I don't, I don't think he would. I, I don't think he would either. But who you are and your family values. Yeah, but it's super interesting to think that 
that's who he's appealing to are these sure. like really young men do you think it's deliberate or do you think it's just by I think it's just by circumstance I think, so. I think it's like all of the cultural momentum like yeah. what I wanted to just like draw a thread of what you're saying which is what I witness and I'm sure you guys witness is that you have all these men that grew up in the 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s 80s and they're told become a good provider get a job don't give a fuck where you get it. Work at a factory. Do whatever. Be an industrial nine to five. Yeah. Make money. Wear whatever, you know, like your white shirt, whatever it is, or your boot collar. Go to work. Take care of your family. Don't worry about emotion. That's not needed because you just need to provide. And then you have all these women who are learning about emotionality and learning about relationship and being empowered. That's a beautiful thing. Or just weren't happy being on the other side of that equation. Right. They're like, oh, wait, so I just got to stay home, give up my purpose, right. my mission. Right. Like, I can't have none of that. I can't work. I can't vote. All of that doesn't have flexibility. And that's the important thing. It doesn't have, like, what do you truly want to do? Who do you, you know? And that's starting, as you were talking about, we equalize, but we go to extremes. Before we equalize. Right. And so you have this, you have all these men who grew up with this, this message who then now are being told, actually, you suck. And then yeah. you have all these women leaving them and they're like, wait, I did everything I was taught. Yeah. And now I have no value to society. Not even do I not have value. I'm blamed for everything that is a problem in society. And again, none of what we're saying is minimizing that there is a contribution. Of sure. course, there's no, no one's a victim here, but people are victims, right? Like it's all till we wake up and ask questions about systems. So a few things. So firstly, I think the, the, the opportunity that we have now in this day and age as men, in this day and age, my apologies, as men, the opportunity we have is to not play the victim and to look at, okay, this is where we've come from. This is what we've been conditioned to. Now we're being asked to be someone different. We actually can stand up and say, do I want to be that something different or do I want to continue the path that I'm on and not minimise my own path and be in my own power, right? And not only be in my own power and and minimise everyone else or oppress anyone else or subjugate, but actually be in my own power and be a stand for what I believe is true, right? So if, if provision is if protection or the expression of that, um, being resourceful, et cetera, is actually something that I feel good in, in my manhood, can I continue to be that in really healthy, direct, certain, clear ways, Safe. right? yeah. So this is yeah. the opportunity that we have as men as opposed to continuing to retract and, and allow society at large or the, the verbiage or media to manipulate us, right? The other thing on, on war that I want to that I want to I want to pull, which I think is really interesting, I read somewhere once um, it was years ago that northern tribes in New Zealand, uh, Maori people in New Zealand, they're quite a warrior class of people, and any time they went to war, they would come back and they would go to this. Um, I can't remember what the group was called, so my apologies, but they would go to this like lagoon or something. And the elders of that community, um, mainly women, and the elder men as well, would come there and these warriors would bathe and they would grieve and they would be nurtured by these elder women mm. until they were nurtured back to wholeness because war, as you know, can be fucking horrific. Mm -hmm. Fighting and violence can be horrific to the nervous system and the psychology. And they would not be allowed to come back to community until they were. Mm. So when you speak about wow. what's, what's happened in war and the, the, the effect of that you know, 70, 80, 90 years later, man, it's still in our society, it's still in our nervous systems that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. When you talk about biological gender Here, here's my take on it like we've we've evolved in a in physical bodies in a physical environment now i'm going to jump and i'm going to jump timelines for a second our consciousness has expanded 
the advent of language, our prefrontal cortex has grown, our ability to be more complex in our thinking, our feeling, our, our social structures have become more layered and complex as well. We have evolved so much from when we were first, I guess, hominoids on this planet, right? Like mm-hmm. call it two, three, four million years ago, whatever it may be. So we're not who we were per se, we're far more advanced. However, our physicality defined at some level the roles we naturally took on. So as men, we're generally bigger, stronger, faster, etc. More muscle mass. More muscle mass. So this is a fact. More testosterone. I won't go down the rabbit hole of testosterone and the value of that because apparently it's fucking James the Cameron devil. already said Oh, he must know. It's the problem. Stay in your lane, James. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, so we naturally did things that contributed to the survivability of our group and ourselves. And over time, millions of years and hundreds of thousands of years, those things become cultural norms as well. So for me, attributes of masculinity and femininity are not just cultural. They are also biological. They're both. And for me, it's okay for it to be both. Right. And so when we look at your version, our version, whatever of masculinity, whatever our in-group decides that is, to me, it's a combination of um, being influenced by our physicality, our biology, our, our hormones. Um, our evolution and also being influenced by our culture, which I think largely has been over time influenced by what we've done based on our biology before we were, I guess, smarter or more intelligent. I like that you said that we have a cultural definition and we have, and they can be both. And they blend. But the idea that, and this is, our society is currently in this place, and maybe it's always been true, I don't think so, but where like, if you resist something, you're seen as rejecting it. If you don't agree with everything with something, it means you don't agree with any of it. Those are, that's obviously not true at all. So apparently being a man is hard, being a human is hard. And like these conversations are, I guess, they're filled with landmines. They're filled with landmines. There's a lot of landmines. There's a lot of, and I think, I think part, of the, part of the thing that I don't think that we should shy away from is traversing the field that has the landmines. Great. Because I think I think that part of what's happened, and it's it's really unfortunate, is that there's a reallocation of not power but control. And there's a reallocation of control to the individuals who are saying, I'm right and you're wrong and you can't talk about it. Yeah. I'm right and you're wrong and you can't have a seat at the table of conversation. And that's dangerous. That is always the path that leads to some type of totalitarianism or authoritarianism period full stop doesn't matter what it is it's just always the path that leaves there and yeah right it's like i've always been liberal i've always been progressive but like whatever people want to think but that's always the that's always the way that it goes and so i think part of it i think is really about control and i think part of our role and i've really grappled with this for a long time because I have a platform, because people follow me and they listen to what I say. And I've really, I've spent years thinking about it. I have spent years thinking about, you know, how do I use my platform and who do I talk to and how do I talk to them and what conversations do I want to have? And, you know, and is that going to lead to me being canceled or taken out, you know, at the knees and my livelihood be altered because of it? And I think part of what I've gotten to Um, Well, part of what I've grappled with is making sure that I've taken the time to think about these things, because I think in our culture, what's happening is we are all communicating from this very reactive place Mm -hmm. and social media 
social media specifically has made it easy to hijack your nervous system and hijack your limbic system and make it so that you're never really forming a deep opinion. You're forming a, a reaction and an opinion on top of that. And your opinion is based on your reactivity. It's based on how you feel first versus you spending time actually thinking about it. Sure. The other thing that I would say is that it's a slippery slope to have identification be the moral and ethical land, like f foundation of what we stand on. Because then people like Andrew Tate, it's, it's easy for them to say, well, this is how I identify. This is my, this is my identity. And so you can't do anything excuses about it. Excuses all kinds of behavior. Ex yeah, excuses all consequences. Because he's like, well, this is how I identify. This is right? who this, I am. Like, this, is part of my, this is part of my pronouns. Right. This is, and so I think it's, it's a very tricky landscape because that type of rooting um, identity to morality, right? Because I always say like masculinity and femininity, they are amoral things. They are, they are they not, just are. they just are. And Two sides of the same coin, man. Right. It's human qualities first. I think masculine and feminine is just for distinction. It's, it creates rich learning experience. That's it. Yeah. Nothing more. It doesn't have to right. be anything Systemizes, controversial. Simplifies. Right. Yeah. So I think that, you know, there's, <laughs> I don't really know where I was going to go with that part of the conversation, but I think if we can return to making gender an amoral thing, because like you're saying, they can serve a rich purpose and how people want to identify is how people want to identify, but attaching morality to it, I think is incredibly slippery. Yeah. Brene Brown talks about how like... Uh, dehumanization always begins with language. Like yes. we can't harm people who we see as similar, but as soon as we start othering, we push them out of the circle and now the psyche and the system can tolerate harm. I am curious, uh, just as sort of a final thought, what do you think is the best thing a man can do, husband, father, whatever comes for you, um, in order to step into that man, like becoming a man? going on that journey and um, where people can find more about you. And we'll make sure we link it all in the show notes. So, you know, to your point before, and I think this feeds into your question, the, the hypersensitivity that I think society is moving through right now, and I do think it's a season, it stops us from being resilient. Uh, it pulls us away from resilience because we're unwilling to look at diversity in perspective or opinion. We're unwilling to have difficult conversations. We just want to be right and righteous and it pulls us away from resilience. And I think resilience is one of our greatest qualities as humans. It's what our ancestors were to get us here today, to who we are today. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, as a father, what's really important for me is a couple of different things, but one of them is resilience. And in, in the sense that I want to be able to um, face the challenges that I'm moving through so that I don't compress them within my own being and unconsciously or consciously pass them on to my family particularly my daughter, my child, through my frustrations or the tension that I'm feeling or the disassociation that I may be experiencing or the lack of presence. And, and honestly, just more compassion towards myself and kindness towards myself and, and being willing to do my inner work as it arises, as I'm faced with that, those challenges, as my daughter may trigger me. Not that, that she's been triggering, but this deep responsibility that I, I value so much is coming into my life and it's activating parts of me that are asking me to grow and expand and grow out of 
aspects of me that I just I actually don't want to be anymore. Mm-hmm. So self-compassion, resilience, and, and really doing my inner work, I think is uh, really powerful for me as a father, as I continue to grow into fatherhood. You mentioned the word uh, responsibility. I, I think a lot about that as the responsibilities continue to expand uh, with each child and providing and be, just being in the world that we've just spent the last hour or two talking about. Like that ability to be able to, your response, the ability to respond to situations, circumstances as a result of doing the self-reflective work uh, and something as, you know, guys, we're all having this conversation uh, that was just in my head around like the way that we choose to see ourselves, uh, the word identity, like recognizing that we exist on these multiple planes of existence. Like there's a physical plane, there's an intellectual plane, there's a spiritual plane and uh, remembering that and like to be uh, an embodiment of that totality. And I think uh, the, the more that I can remember, the more that I can be present, the more that I can <laughs> be, that is, you know, the, the call for me uh, in my own life is just to practice presence to, um, in, and with the identity thing around fatherhood is like, in a, in a way, uh, I'm constantly transitioning my identity, like I'm becoming another version of a father. And that changes like every year. And mm-hmm. as my children develop, it's like requiring me to then become the next version of a father. And so in that way, my identity is constantly changing, evolving, and it's required of me. So yeah, I think like the invitation or uh, is like develop a capacity to respond uh, to the world uh, and then to continually transition or to continually uh, develop yourself into the next highest version and remembering through all that whole process that you're like a physical being with an intellect uh, and and a spiritual being having this you know little experience on planet Earth. I think there's a couple things that I hope to embody. Use that word. I think there's a couple things I hope to embody. The first one is competency. Mm-hmm. You know, I think growing up, I didn't feel confident in much of anything. wasn't good in school. Was okay in sports. Didn't feel confident with women. And no one, no one really showed up in my life to teach me competency, to teach me discipline. You know, discipline was a punishment as a kid. That's what it always was. It wasn't something that was a practice that led to something meaningful. And so I hope that I embody that for the men that are around me and specifically for my son. And I hope that I can teach him, you know, to pursue things where he can feel competent in them. And, and that will lead to fruitful things, right? Purpose, meaning, etc. That's one. I think the other two kind of go hand in hand and there's one more regulation and maintaining relationship through disagreement. I fundamentally believe that what is needed culturally, socially, and in our world today are more men who understand how to stay regulated mm-hmm. and how to stay regulated and maintain relationship when we, when we disagree. Mm-hmm. Like I can disagree with you and still maintain relationship. I can disagree with you and still maintain relationship. And socially what I've seen happening and in relationships as well, individual relationships like couples is that the relationship breaks when there's disagreement. We have, we have fucked our culture and our society by letting it be okay for you to break relationship with people as soon as you disagree. Yeah. And a lot of that, I think, comes from this root of 
we don't know how to regulate our internal systems. And so I think that the more that we, that we can be, the more that I can be an embodiment of regulation for my boy and for the people that I come into contact with, the, the better. And I think that that is going to continue to be an asset that is like a rare material in our culture. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do think that regulation and a regulated human being is going to be a rare material in a culture because there are so many people who are just dysregulated as soon as they hear something that they don't like and that they disagree with. The last piece, um, my favorite quote of all time is by Einstein. And he said, um, the rational mind is a faithful servant and the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And we've created a culture that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. And so the last one for me is doing everything in my power to follow a deeper compass, to follow some type of intuition or gut or spirit or soul or however, whatever label you want to put on it, but to live my life in such a way where I'm not constantly just caught in my rational mind where I'm actually being guided and living from a place of intuition, from the gift of whatever we want to call that. Beautiful. I mean, I think all of that speaks to like, as men transitioning from being trapped in adaptive, adolescent, childlike responses and the responsibility that comes with holding the space of relationship protect, provide, whatever the words we use, but like how the maturation process is on us to seek, to go on the adventure. Mm -hmm. But like one thing or and. And you won't want to do it. You will not want to mature. I don't know about you guys, but I have not wanted <laughs> no, to mature. <laughs> having a kid put me back in a similar like, oh wait, there's more, there's a new season. Yeah. And I, I can't reiterate enough how important mass like male friends are for that process and also community because mm -hmm. like nervous system wise you need to be resourced to go into the depths the darkness the unknown and that is through brotherhood and it's through co-regulation right mm -hmm. that's one of the i think mm -hmm. i'm very firm i'm sure psychedelics and eating meat and discovering fire has definitely evolved us but i think the ability to co-regulate Totally. in our nervous systems oh. with others and mm -hmm. actually feel that. When I hate myself, you can look at me and say, no, I love you. And your nervous system is in parasympathetic where I'm jacked, right? Because what you're speaking just to drops you. just drops. And that's, mm -hmm. I'm learning. I'm, I'm growing through my pain. So I think what you're both speaking to is, is everything, personally everything for me, for sure. Mm -hmm. And that, like, you heal your system with your partner, your family and, system, and that, and your community, okay. your culture, yeah. your world. It's okay to have those needs. And right. needs, needs are so... I don't know, they're so shunned upon. It's like, oh, you need that person? Or, or you? There's a difference between being needy and having needs, right? All right. Like, yeah, we do need each other. Like, there's going to be right. times where I can't do shit for myself. I'm going to need you to do it for me. And, and that's a big ask, and you don't have to do it. But if you can, thank you. 